Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining me today on my podcast is Bob Puglis, the chairman and CEO of Premier Wealth Management, as well as one of our inaugural past winners of the Spirit of Cambridge Award. Thanks for coming on my show, Bob. Thank you for having me, Amy. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. I think our audience is going to get a treat today. So the way that I like to start this off is to ask you to share with our listeners your story. I remember how unique this started when you and I first met here at Cambridge and things looked very different than it does now. So I can't wait to hear your perspective on that. But how did you get started in the profession, and how did you get where you are today, running one of our largest enterprises and serving other financial professionals? Well, for starters, I have to go way back as a youngster. I come from a very poor family, okay? So we had, we had a lot of things that count in terms of values, but we didn't have much in terms of money. So money always fascinated me, people that had money and how they got it, whether it was given to them or they inherited it or they worked for it. But in the beginning, when I came out of school, I had taken mathematics in college. And when I came out of school, I was actually in the computer industry. I was a systems analyst and I designed programs. And I had a couple of bad experiences in terms of working for other people. So I'm in my early 20s and I decided right then and there, you know, I'm really an entrepreneur. I want to be more in charge of what I'm doing. And I'm looking for a field to get into. And I've always been intrigued with this notion of sales because salespeople can write their own ticket. You can make as much as you want or as little as you need. But I wanted to be into an area where I could actually help people and make a difference in their lives. So I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor or a dentist or any of those professions. So I looked at the finance world. I said, you know, I can really make a difference here because Knowing my background, that I come from a family that has no money, okay, I can make a difference if I can help people achieve their goals and really build up a nest egg so that they can live the life they want without, without beholding anybody. So I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So it's January of 1972. I'm in my 50th year now. I started in January of 72. I started with Prudential. In the beginning, I was strictly an insurance agent, although right out of the chute, In 72, Prudential was getting into the securities business. And I could spend a lot of time talking about what the securities industry was like 50 years ago. We studied for the better part of the year. In October of that year, I took my test. It was paper and pencil, just like the old college boards. You sent it in and you waited six weeks for the results. So in December of 72, I got my envelope in the mail from the National Association of Securities Dealers. I had passed my first securities test. I was licensed, whoopee, okay? The industry was totally different. There were only about 200 or 250 mutual funds, not mutual fund families, mutual funds. Stockbrokers worked for warehouses, they sold stocks and bonds. People like me only sold mutual funds. There were no variable annuities, there were no ETFs, there were no BDCs. None of the things we have today existed, just mutual funds. Prudential had three mutual funds, Nationwide had three. MFS, which started the industry, had three. Go back and look at American funds and see how many of their funds existed in 1972. Fidelity wasn't even in existence. I don't think they came around until 77. 
Vanguard was 78. One of them was 77, one of them was 78. So it was a completely different industry. And in dealing with our clients, you had to speak with them, you know, just getting them attuned to this because they weren't accustomed to having their insurance people talk to them about investments. I lasted at Prudential for nine years. I realized that if you were going to do the best job for your clients, you had to be independent. And no company had the market cornered on excellence. Prudential at that time was the largest insurance company in the world. We had roughly 50,000 agents. 30,000 were on the debit side, 20,000 were on the ordinary side, but we had 50,000 agents. And I decided I wanted to be independent. I believed early on someone had taught me that the name of the company doesn't sell people by people. They either believe in you and trust in you, or they're not going to do business with you. So I wanted to sell myself. I wanted to be independent. So in 1981, I went independent. But I was a jack of all trades at that time. Between getting my securities license with Prudential and when I left, they had also gotten into the property and casualty industry. So it's 1981, I'm a jack of all trades. I'm selling insurance, I'm selling investments. I've got PNC, group insurance, you name it, I'm doing everything. And I stayed that way for 10 years. I started in 1981 independently after I left Prudential at my kitchen table, slowly built a big organization. I was a multi-million dollar casualty operation, but it got to the point where between meeting with wholesalers and due diligence CE, you could literally spend one day a week just meeting with a wholesaler or doing CE. And I said, this is crazy. So what I did is I started to narrow my focus and eliminate things and decided I was gonna be a specialist. And every time I narrowed my focus, my production went up because as I became more focused on doing cer certain things, instead of being a jack of all trades, my production would go up. And something that I learned years later, I heard Eric Schwartz say years later, you need to be the best at what you do. And if you're not the best, you need to be perceived as the best. You can only be perceived as the best if you have a narrow focus. Okay, I didn't want to be a generalist. I wanted to be a specialist. So I sold my casualty business and I had a commitment of five years with the firm I went, I sold it to. That's when I first made, met my business partner, Tracy, January of 92. She was very young. So we'll be together 30 years in January. And that's where we first met. And my function there was insurance, investments, and building a employee benefit department. And I did that for five years. When the five years were up for personal reasons and business reasons, I went strictly on my own. So it's now 96, 97, I'm now more and more into investments. And I, between doing investments and we, we did seminar selling for, to build our personal side. And then the pension business, we were big in the pension business we would go in and get the employee benefits and then pivot from that and get the pension business or go in and get the pension business first and then pivot from that and get the employee benefit business. So it's 1998, 1999, and we're not happy because the firm we're with has now changed hands two or three times. Prudential, of course, was owned by an insurance company. The firm I went with after that started out independent, but then they were bought by an insurance company. Then the firm I was with after that that was owned by another insurance company. And the firm we were with before we came to Cambridge was owned by Jackson National. So I sat down and I came up with a list of things that I was looking for in a broker dealer. 
I looked at the whole broker dealer world. I narrowed it down to seven. I took the seven and whittled it down to three. Cambridge was one of the three. The other two don't even exist anymore. So I made the right decision. And I bought Eric Schwartz's dream. I like to say we're in our 22nd year with Cambridge. There are a few people at Cambridge that I really admire on the advisory side because they are the people who took a chance. When I see people, they're still with Cambridge. They joined Cambridge when there was five and 10 and 15 advisors. When I met you in the fall of 99, you were expecting with your second child, I guess, okay? And people don't know that you were our chauffeur when we came. Tracy and I came to Cambridge in 99. You were our chauffeur. And there were only about 165 advisors in the firm. There were only maybe 25 people in the home office. And it was it's an entirely different world than what it is today. I remember being in that storefront on Burlington Avenue. And again, I bought Eric Schwartz's dream. I think he's an honorable man. I've always said, I'll tell anybody, a handshake with Eric is better than a written contract with somebody else because he's always been good to his word. He's always treated me well. I've always felt welcome. We were never too small and we were a lot smaller then than we are today, but yet we were treated the same way. We were meant to feel important. We felt appreciated. So that's how I got to where I am today. Now, I joined as an advisor and when I joined in 99 as an advisor, it was Tracy and I, and we had one gentleman joined us in 2000 who came from the old firm, and he came over. But in 2001, we started to build our, our branch, what we refer to now as enterprise groups. The, the first person we ever brought on board is still with us. 20 years later, he's still with us. And one by one, we built the branch and Today, we have advisors that refer us to their friends, and that's where we're getting most of our, most of our new advisors are coming to us as referrals from, from other advisors. So we had done that for maybe a year or two, and we got up to about 10 or 12 advisors. And this is probably where I differ with some of my colleagues, but we reached a point where I thought to myself, do we want to build a branch or do we want to be in personal production? Because I can see there's a conflict of interest here. If the market tanks, am I more concerned about the people I'm working with or am I more concerned about my clients? And then secondly, the time involved, and Lord knows today the time involved is exponentially more than it was in 2001 and 2002. I don't have the time to do both. So we made a decision when we got to about 12 advisors that we were going to keep the clients we had, but we weren't going to look for any more new ones. We were going to devote our time to working with our advisors and helping them build their practices and achieving their dreams. No, it's absolutely perfect and inspiring. And we're blessed to have you and our family all the way back. I just celebrated 23 years myself last week. So we both showed up around the same time. And I also bought his dream. So I understand. I always like Jim Guy's story because I remember he, he, he made me remember about the crinkled up paper sign in the window about Cambridge and went down to the basement to see the file room and the, the files are up on, on blocks, so to speak, because of the water. And I'll never let her forget this. My transition person was Margaret Dwyer. And when we came there to visit, she was off. And I've never left her forget that. So <laughs> She's fantastic. She actually just officially resigned 
and is off living her new dream. But she definitely had an impact on a lot of things, which is a great segue, Bob. Talk about dreams. So you've built this amazing enterprise. You make such a difference in your financial professionals' lives. But I know that you're what I would call maybe in even phase two of a journey that many find hard to do, slowing down, passing on the baton, trusting a group of people that you have been working with for a while. Talk to our audience, our listeners, about how you approach that decision and, you know, maybe the pros and cons of it. I made a conscious decision uh, at least 10 or 12 years ago that I did not want to work forever, and I don't want to work forever. I have a wonderful family. I've got hobbies and interests that I enjoy. And if you don't step aside, if you don't pass on the reins, you're never going to get to the point where you enjoy those. And more than one person has told me that, and I've seen people pass away, that nobody ever says on their deathbed, I wish I had spent more time at the office, okay? I made a decision even years and years ago. And when I started, I was a successful producer. I was the number two producer in the entire region. But I never worked on the weekends. And, uh, you know, to me, Friday lunchtime till Monday morning was family time. I had a, my wife and I got married young. I was 22. She was 21. And we are our children young. And I wanted to be there for them because I know they're only around for a short time. So I wanted to be involved with my children. And even at that stage, I said, you know, I want to do this, but I want to do it in a way that at some point I can step away. I'm to the age now where my children are grown. I have grandchildren. And I want to, I want to do some things that I enjoy. The only way you can do that is if you build an organization. And I started with Tracy, amazing individual. I, I tell my guys all the time, my guys and gals that work for me, that work with me, I should say, they're my partners that when I first brought Tracy on, she was my administrative assistant. She wasn't my business partner. And when I asked her to be my business partner, I said, you need to be fully registered. I gave her three years. In a nine month period, she passed her life and health, her series six, her series seven, her 63 and her 65. Five exams in nine months, scored in the eighties in all of them. And she had two little boys. It can be done if you want to do it. That's so. Right then and then I said, okay, I've got somebody here that is committed. And gradually I taught her a lot of things. And we've expanded our staff over the years. We now have 10 people in-house on staff, everything from compliance to building models to whatever you need, a virtual assistant. We've got our own marketing and communications department. We can do anything and everything for our advisors. Some we do for free and some we charge for, but we have a whole laundry list, if that's the proper word, or a whole menu of services that we deal with. We have virtual assistant, practice management assistant, marketing assistant, you name it, we can do it. And I built this staff and I've added to it all along. Eight years ago, nine years ago, when I turned 65, because I'm going to be 74 in a few months, when I turned 65, I started winding down and I went from five days a week to four days a week. And then I went to three days a week. And then I went to two days a week. And I'm not ashamed to tell anybody, and my team knows I work one day a week now. And I did it for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to prove to myself that Tracy could actually handle running the shop. More importantly, 
I needed her to believe in herself that she could run the shop. We're way beyond that now. Everybody affiliated with Premier Wealth Management, I'm talking from in-house to our advisors, to the people who work in our advisory offices know that Tracy's running the shop. It's kind of like Eric and Amy, okay? Am I still involved? Yes, but it's mostly for monetary. Like they'll ask me, what do I think about this? How do I think about that? How would I approach something? Have I ever seen this before in my 50 years? There's not too much I haven't seen. And it works well. If you don't do that, if you don't give somebody some responsibility and see what they can do, you're never going to get to the point where you want to step aside. And I've seen people that want to micromanage everything. You can't enjoy life like that. You also have to accept the fact that everyone's personality is different. So how you do things may not necessarily be the way someone else would do it, but that's okay. We're only looking for results. We're not looking for how they got there. I could say to one person, I want you to go from A to D and somebody will go straight from A to D and somebody else is going to go from A to B, B to C and C to D. That doesn't make it wrong. It's how their personality is. If that bothers you, you're never going to get to the point where you can hand the reins off to somebody else. It doesn't bother me. I don't micromanage. I allow people the freedom to work within their own selves to achieve the goal. All I care about is the goal. That we get to the goal, that we get to it in a reasonable amount of time, that we get to it in a reasonable cost. If we did that, it's successful. If you get to that point, you can do what I'm doing. I'm still going to be involved, but I'm only going to be involved as a, as a consultant to the business. I've got some things I've dreamt about doing all my life and I'm going to do them. So a visionary. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, Eric Schwartz is my role model. So well, I would suggest based on listening to your story, you have followed a lot of the reasons why he is where he is. And you guys have a lot in common. If I were starting out in business today, I, I would be building my practice in, in two areas. Number one, I would be building it on fee-based business. And number two, I would be building it in pension business. I'm very big in the pension market. In fact, we're building a whole program for our advisors in terms of pensions, because with social security and some of the programs in the fiscal shape that they're in, there isn't what I don't care what they say. Those programs aren't going to exist for young people that are in their 20s and 30s and maybe even in their early 40s. So how are you going to retire if you don't build up some money? So pensions are important. The other thing about pension business is that people who are gainfully employed keep putting money into their pension plan, whether the market is up or down. So if you are an advisor and you're looking for a revenue stream, that pension business gives you an excellent stream of revenue, plus the fact you can pivot off that pension business. If you can build a rapport with at least the higher compensated employees, and if not, maybe the upper management, maybe junior management, even some of the rank and file employees, you can pick up other business. You can pick up 529s, you can pick up IRAs, you can do life insurance. There's a lot of things you can do with those people. So you can have a very comfortable living just spinning off from the 401ks. And then, of course, we're very big on fee-based business. Our branch is in the 70% fee-based. Our enterprise group is 70-some percent fee-based. And our recurring revenue is in the 93%, 94% range. 
So when we wake up on January 1st, we know we have a solid budget because we know that we have a lot of recurring revenue. That's something I try to instill in our younger advisors. If you're building a practice, build something that has sustainability. The other thing I've learned over the years is that if someone has income coming in, they're far less likely, unless they're extremely greedy, they are far less likely to get in trouble because they're not going to do something out of desperation. They're not going to sell something that they shouldn't otherwise sell because they have to pay the bills and pay the mortgage and feed the family. So if you have that recurring revenue, again, except for those few bad apples that you're never going to get rid of, average person is not going to do something just to do it. They're going to always act in the best interest of the client. And I believe that. I've, I've seen this too many times over the years. So Great. Bob, you've built a successful business to the point where you're able to start enjoying some of the success in a different way chasing those things you've dreamed about maybe doing for years. Talk to us a little bit about what those things are. What do you spend time doing when you're not working? Well, first of all, I spend time with my family. I have uh, I married my high school sweetheart. We'll be married 52 years in August. We got married young. I was 22. She was 21. We had our children young. My son just turned 50. He's married now 21 years. We have two granddaughters. My daughter is 46 or 47, two grandsons there. So we want to spend time with the family. We do a lot of things with the family. On a personal, more personal side, just for myself, number one, I'm an avid reader. I'll read 40 to 50 books a year. That doesn't count trade publications or, or magazines or anything like that. I'm just talking about 40 to 50. It could be biographies, autobiographies, historical books novels, crime stories, whatever. I, I have a, a wide range of reading interest. I'm not just reading one thing, but I read 40 to 50 books a year. Secondly, I'm an amateur photographer. And I'm proud of the fact that some of my photos have been featured in two shows, okay? And then third, I love to travel. And travel and the photography go together because I've taken some great pictures different places in the world. So those are my three hobbies, so to speak aside from the fact that I like to spend time with the family. So that's what I do to spend, spend my time. You may not remember this, but one of your beautiful pictures, it's still hanging in my office. You gave it to me as a gift many, many years ago. Was, was that the one of the catamarans in Hawaii? It is. Okay. Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> and I look at it every day. I'm here in Iowa. For our listeners, do you have a favorite book that maybe helped you in your life or career that we could give a shout out for that they could go look up? Well, I'll tell you the two, from a business standpoint, two of my favorite books are Good to Great by Jim, Jim Collins and The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. That was one of the first books we, I ever read. In fact, just to step back uh, to the early 2000s, when we were building our enterprise group, Tracy and I had our own study club. We would buy these books, we would read them, and then we would discuss them. And we learned a lot from some of the things we, we, we read. But those are my two favorite business books. As far as on the personal side, I don't have a favorite book. James Michener is my favorite author. One of my favorite James Michener books is Chesapeake, which he wrote in the 80s. I have all of Michener's books all first editions and nine or 10 of them are autographed. And I take pride in that. Again, if I go back to when I was poor and I couldn't afford any books, now I have an extensive book collection. So 
I love to read. So that's great. Those are two of my favorite business books as well. So great minds think alike. Maybe we can wrap up with you sharing with us a little bit about the Central Pennsylvania Friends of Jazz. Do you play an instrument? No, I don't play an instrument. I often wish I did, but I don't. I first got interested in jazz in the early 60s. I was a young teenager. I remember there was a place in Hershey, Pennsylvania called the Starlight Ballroom. And anybody who was, who, everybody who was anybody would come through the Starlight Ballroom. And my first exposure to jazz was the Stan Kenton Orchestra. One of my older friends took me, took me to see Stan Kenton. So I've been into jazz since the early 60s. I love jazz music. If you, if you follow jazz, there's only two truly American art forms. A lot of people don't know this. One is film. The movie industry, the film industry is purely American. This is where it started. The other is jazz, okay? Jazz was started in the United States. If you talk about classical or anything else, art, sculpture, it all came from somewhere else. Only two American forms are film and jazz. What I liked about jazz, and this is where the entrepreneurial spirit comes in, they're free spirits. Jazz musicians are grounded technically. They understand scales, they understand notes, they understand chords, they understand how to put things together. You can take a jazz musician and put him or her in any orchestra and they can play. You can't say the same in reverse because there are a lot of bands that are just cover bands. They memorize the music, they can't read music. The other thing about jazz that I like, and this goes back to being an entrepreneur, is when you're in a combo or any size of a group, sooner or later you get the solo. And it's readily apparent whether you can play or not to the audience. They know this person can really play or they can't play. They call it improvisation, which is very difficult. You, you can explain it to somebody, but how do you play something right now that you were thinking about five seconds ago? And while you're playing what you were thinking about five seconds ago, you're thinking about where you're going next. You can't teach somebody that. So they're very gifted. They're very talented. And it reminds me in a way of what the successful people are like in our industry. They can do things, you can explain to somebody, you can teach somebody, but there's just something that separates the truly good performers in our industry from people who aren't. And sometimes you can't describe it. They can tell you what they're doing. Sometimes they can tell you, sometimes they can't, but you can't really you can either do it or you can't. Let's put it like that. It's like the jazz musician. You can either, when it's your turn to perform, you can either play or you can't. And speaking about the Friends of Jazz, Premier Wealth Management has been the prime sponsor of their jazz festival for the last five years. So they know who we are and we enjoy it. That's one of the, one of the things we support in our area. The other thing we do that I do personally is I'm the founder and executive director of the LFA Foundation, which is a nonprofit foundation. The impetus for that, the inspiration comes from my youngest grandson, who is very challenged. He's got multiple medical issues on top of which he's nonverbal. So I've made a commitment that I'm gonna help families like his because it's, very, it's hard on the family, very hard on the family. So I'm very de dedicated and devoted to that. I'm also involved with a number of other boards that I serve on, and I'm very philanthropic. I try to help those who are less fortunate than myself, whether it's educational institutions, religious institutions, nonprofits, 
I am very philanthropic. I, I try to give back because I feel that I've been blessed beyond my wildest dreams. So now I'm going to try and help some others. So, Bob, thanks for sharing today. There is certainly something special that separates you clearly. I hope our listeners realize the gifts that you've just given them in this short period of time. And Cambridge is really lucky that you chose us back in 1999. Thank you for trusting us with your business and helping in any way we could in watching your growth and success. Thanks for sharing such inspiration with our listeners. And I very much appreciate you joining me today. Amy, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great experience and I've enjoyed talking to you and Hopefully some of the ideas that I've shared will have an effect on some of the folks listening. Without a doubt. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at CambridgeStronger.com. That's CambridgeStronger.com.